Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Paul. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. That's, uh, that's controversial. I'd, I'd love to ask you a question. I, I love questions. It's a pretty heavy one, but it's a really important one. How seriously do we take sin? How seriously do we take sin? Now, I don't mean how seriously do we take sin as a society and a culture. That, that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other question. That's a whole other issue or it's a whole other non-issue. No, I'm asking how seriously do we as the church take sin? How seriously do you and I take it as people and as individuals who are part of the church? It was my sin that held him there. We sing that quite a lot here at Windsor, often around communion. And we, we celebrate the fact that, that because of Jesus, because of the, the cross, our sin has been forgiven. Jesus has paid it all. But Christians still sin. We're, we're no longer slaves to it. Sin has lost its grip on me. Again, that's another line we sing from songs. Or the song we sang earlier, yet not, not, not I, but Christ in me. Sin has been, we just sang, defeated, yes. But we still mess up. We still get it wrong as Christians. And I, I doubt there's anyone here who would dare to claim otherwise. I know I've messed up this week. I could not stand up here and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for years, but do you know something? I haven't sinned this week. I wouldn't dare stand up here and say that. You see, to quote Hebrews 12, sin still entangles us. It so easily, is what the writer says, it so easily entangles us. It ties us up. It holds us back, which is why the writer urges us to do what as Christians? What does the writer say we should do with our sin then? In Hebrews 12 too. Throw it off. Because this sin that's so easily entangled, you need to be constantly, so that you can keep running the race that has been marked out for us with perseverance. Sin doesn't go away whenever you become a Christian. It is virtually always, to use another kind of biblical phrase or idea, sin is always crouching at your door. And I don't know about you, but I often sense its foreboding presence. So, someone has put it like this, and this was a Christian writing, sin courts me, and its silky smooth sound resonates in my sinful ears. Every member of my body joins in the beguilement. My eyes love to gaze upon that which I should not study. My ears long to listen to that which I should not heed. My hands enjoy caressing that which I should not touch. My tongue lisps things I dare not utter, and my feet are swift to take me to desire's destination. I don't know if you can relate to any of that. But you know, sin 
still entices. It still attracts. And so let me ask us again, how seriously do you and I take it now? You see, sin is crouching at your door to finish the quote from God's word. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Wow. So the question is, how? How do you rule over it? Well, the answer to that is partly found in tonight's controversial saying of Jesus. And if you're visiting tonight, we've been, we've been looking at a whole bunch of these because there are lots of them. But the answer is partly found in the one we're going to look at tonight. You see, if anyone is in any doubt how seriously we are to take sin and should take sin, then if you're in any doubt about this, listen again and listen afresh to the, what Jesus said in Matthew 5, which he said, and this is the important bit, which he said to his disciples and said to the people out there, didn't say it to those who were interested, or he said it to his disciples. If your right eye causes you to stumble, or in another version, if your right eye causes you to sin, or in the New Living Translation, if your right eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble or causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. That's controversial. But Jesus makes it really clear that we must deal ruthlessly with sin. He, he knew how insidious it is. He was familiar with its tricks. He knew how sin still has the ability in our lives, in my life, to negatively impact my relationship with God. Jesus knows how sin can distract us and entangle us and chip away at our holiness and compromise our worship and dilute our commitment. Jesus knows this. And so in language that is shocking, that is arresting, that is dramatic, he calls his disciples to undergo some radical spiritual surgery to practice, as someone has put it, the art of spiritual self-mutilation. It's controversial. Jesus understood that there was and there is, as Christians, this flesh and spirit battle that rages within our bodies. You see, Jesus would have fully understood what Paul later wrote in Romans 7 when he said this. We know these words. For I do not do the good that I want to do. That's what Paul said. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. You see, Paul's life had been totally transformed. He had met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, but he still struggled with the reality of temptation and the tendency to sin. And whenever he was writing his letter to the churches in Galatia, he explained this flesh and spirit battle that they were engaged in. In these words, he said this, for the, this is him writing to Christians, for the flesh 
desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Yes, Christians are born again of the spirit of God, but our sinful nature has not been blasted out of existence. Still exists. Still kicks and screams. And unless you and I take that seriously and take sin seriously and deal with it ruthlessly, then we are in danger of entertaining sin, of letting it get a foothold, of allowing it to mess significantly with our hearts and minds, with our worship and our witness. So again, allow me to ask us, how seriously do we take sin? Do we think Jesus did? Now let me set this controversial saying of Jesus in its kind of fuller context, because it's really important we do that, I know. And I want to home in on a particular issue, a particular sin that Jesus clearly believed required this kind of special and careful attention. This saying is part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It runs from the beginning of Matthew 5. It runs to the end of Matthew 7. And this sermon, or is it a collection of sermons? We're not quite sure. But it's all brought together in these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But in this sermon, Jesus explains what it means to live in and what it means to live out the kingdom of God as his blessed new community of God. He explains what it means to live out the kingdom of God as the poor in spirit, as those, who, as those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He explains what it means to live as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so he goes on in this sermon to explain what life in the kingdom looks like and feels like and plays out like. Where you walk the extra mile, where you turn the other cheek, where you pray for those who persecute you, where you do not judge others. But as part of this teaching of what it means to live life in the kingdom of God, because he's speaking to his disciples, he addresses a number of sins. But he kind of takes them to a whole other level. He takes them to a heart level because the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. You see, it's not about the letter of the law. This is what Jesus was really saying as he did this little teaching block within the Sermon on the Mount. It's not about the letter of the law. It's about the spirit of it. There were people around, particularly the Pharisees, who were really hung up on the letter of the law. But Jesus said, listen, I want you to understand it goes so much deeper than this. And so what Jesus teaches and says is profoundly challenging. And so, for example, just before the bit that we're about to read, Jesus has warned about the sin of anger. He says, listen, people know that it is wrong to murder. But Jesus then takes this further and says, misplaced anger has got no place in the kingdom of God. Yeah, okay, you may not kill someone, but you see, if you are angry with your brother and sister, then you will be subject to judgment. I mean, those are strong, strong words. And so he says, here's what you've got to do. You see, whenever your anger is misplaced, you may not kill someone, but you, you get angry with people. So here's what you do. Jesus says, you go and you be reconciled to the person that you are angry with. 
You sort out the tension. You deal with the name calling because he says in that little section, don't be calling other people fools or whatever other words you use. Sort it out between yourselves. That's what life in this kingdom looks like. But then he moves on to another explicit sin and he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. There's commandment number seven. But Jesus takes it further and he takes it deeper and he says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on to say, so if your right eye causes you to stumble, causes you to sin, causes you to lust, here's what you gotta do. Tear it out. Throw it away. So let me go back to this question and become more specific. How seriously do you and I take the sin of lust? Lust is a deadly sin. And I have spoken about it before, especially during our Deadly Seven series, which is now seven years ago. And I think we all know what lust is. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I mean, don't get uncomfortable. I'm not gonna go into a huge amount of detail. But I think we all know what it is. The dictionary defines lust as an intense and an unrestrained sexual craving. In other words, what it is, is it's disordered desire. In Job 31, and, and, and I, I don't know if I'd ever really come, I mean, I will, there's a, there's a verse in Job 31 that you're all gonna expect me to go to, and I will go to later, but there's a later verse in Job 31 that I don't think I've ever come across before, particularly in the New Living Translation, because here is this rather stark definition of lust. For lust is a shameful sin. A crime that should be punished. It is a fire that burns all the way to hell. It would wipe out everything I own. Wow. You see, lust is a self-gratification project because lust objectifies people. It is that lingering look that treats another human being as just a body. It's as a thing to entertain, a thing to satisfy our unrestrained sexual craving as we imagine and as we fantasize. Lust takes sex and sexual desire, which are God-given gifts, and commodifies them. And so sex becomes a thing you do and gets totally removed from any sense of relationship and intimacy. Lust triggers a thought process that leads us down a potentially destructive path that destroys minds and relationships, our reputation, our bodies, and it leads to brokenness and shame and endless regret. And this is a key reason why Jesus identifies this, and this is where there's a tension here. Because Jesus is not a saying this, and he's not identifying this to kind of limit or spoil or restrict our life and our freedom, but because Jesus has come to give life to the full. Jesus wants us, as we were hearing this morning, Jesus wants us to flourish. But you see the thing about lust? Lust diminishes life and freedom. One key biblical example of lust's extreme cost of life and love is the painful story, and again, we've referred to it many times, of David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 
11 and 12, which forever stands as a solemn warning about the deadliness of this sin, because David sees this incredibly attractive woman bathing, and his intense and unrestrained sexual craving then dictates his behavior. And so he entertains and he pursues his selfish, distorted desire. And having committed adultery with Bathsheba in his heart, to use the language of Jesus, he then goes ahead and commits adultery with her in practice. And the damage caused was extensive. And so relationships are wrecked and trust is broken and lives are lost. We all know that. Because lust is a sin, it is selfish, it is distorted sexual desire, it objectifies people, it commodifies sex. And so, says Jesus, you look lustfully at another human being and you commit adultery in your heart. You see, that damages you from the inside out. And because Jesus longs to fix our hearts and transform us from the inside out so that we can enter the kingdom of heaven and live lives, flourishing lives that reflect that kingdom, Jesus then goes on and says, well, here is how you deal decisively with that sin that wrecks your heart. If you're right eye, here's how you deal with it. If your right eye causes you to stumble or sin or lust, Gouge it out and throw it away. Because you see, it is better for you to lose one part of your body and for your, for your whole body to be thrown into hell. The language is extreme, but it communicates how serious we do need to take this. And Jesus was using hyperbole, I know that. He was utilizing a figure of speech that kind of naturally and dramatically grab people's attention and disturb their sensibilities. But we must be careful that we never trivialize this in any shape or form or downplay it or dilute the full weight and the force of what Jesus was saying. And I know many of us know from church history that there were a number of people, there were many godly men and women who took these words of Jesus literally and as a result, they physically mutilated themselves. And we could think of examples, and probably the best known is Origen, I know that, but surely that was never the intention of Jesus, that we should physically mutilate ourselves. I mean, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, so Jesus can't have meant that we're to literally gouge our eyes out and crack off our arms. But although we may say, yeah, all those people went like ours, and they went far too far, but we must not make the mistake of thinking that we shouldn't be as ruthless or as serious as to how we deal with sin in our lives. Jesus says, listen, if your red eye causes you to sin, you, you need to gouge it out. And having spoken about the danger of lust, th this makes so much, it makes perfect sense because the eye is the vehicle of lust. Lust is in the eye of the beholder. It certainly begins there with that initial look Stare, browse, click. Begins there. And Jesus wants his kingdom people to be acutely aware of how lust impacts their hearts. 
And therefore, he challenges his disciples to think carefully about what they look at and who they look at and how they see. And although, and we've said it before, I know this probably relates more to men than to women because men are more readily stimulated by sight, but this is not exclusive to men. And so this is, and we've said it before, this is an incredibly relevant and pertinent subject for us to address because we do live in a highly and an increasingly visual and sexually explicit culture and society that bombards us with images and innuendo. And although you could argue, but it's been like that for a very long time, well, the availability of sexual images and content via technology and handheld technology and portable technology and the simple click on a screen that has taken accessibility, not just availability, but accessibility to a whole other level. And so we find ourselves living at a time whenever pornography and the pornography industry has, is growing like never before. And although I don't want to veer off into that, which is a massive subject in itself, the impact on the eye and the heart is undeniable. The world, to quote one social commentator was reading this week, the world has become, this is his phrase, the world has become pornified. And the statistics are shocking. I'm not about to reel off a whole pile of statistics, but the statistics are shocking, including amongst those who define and describe themselves as Christians. Porn sites receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month. And they're depressing the statistics when you read them. But here's the thing, porn is rampant in our society and our culture, but what's even more disturbing is it's becoming normal. Normalized. It's part and parcel of our world today. And while that, that may be true and it may be distressing, and it may be disturbing and it may be simply a fact of the world in which we live in today, the challenge is this. You see, if you're going to guard your heart, if you're a Christian, if you're going to guard your heart, if you're going to avoid committing adultery in your heart on a regular basis, then we need to think carefully about what images enter our eyes and fill our minds. We're going to need to take seriously the intention behind the words of Jesus. If your right eye, and I know there's some discussion, why is it the right eye? I'm not going to go there. But if your right eye causes you to sin, rip it out. So what does it mean in practice? What did Jesus mean? Well, I, I can't, I can't be specific about what Jesus meant exactly, but let me make a, a few suggestions. Let me go back to Job, and this is where some of you will, will know I'm going to go with this. But in chapter 31 of this fascinating Old Testament book, remember what type of book it is, this fascinating Old Testament book of wisdom literature. And in chapter 31, Job is defending his integrity before God. And Job clearly recognizes the importance of personal purity. And so when it comes to lust, which is something that Job has realized can have a negative effect and impact on his heart, he shares this famous statement of intent. I made a covenant with my eyes, says Job, not to look lustfully at a young woman. 
And, and here we have a very determined, advanced commitment to live differently, to see differently. Here, here was a man ahead of time drawn a line in the sand, a line that, that he was intending not to cross. And, and that word, and it's a very strong word, covenant, that, that's just a word that reveals, in this context, it reveals a seriousness of intent because a covenant is a vow often solemnized by a verbal or written commitment and pledge which must never be violated. And so here's somebody saying, I'm not going to take this lightly. I've identified the struggle. I know the temptation. And so I've made a covenant with my eyes. Now, I'm not suggesting that's a biblical command. I'm not suggesting that. But I do think it's wise advice if we are serious about guarding our hearts from the dangers of lust. And if we think that's a bit kind of hardcore, excuse the pun, if we think that's a bit hardcore, let's also remember Paul's related and very explicit command about how ruthless we need to be with this. Because Paul says this in Galatians 3, put to death. This is him writing about what it means to be made alive in Christ and to live in Christ. This is what Paul says to his readers, to Christian believers. Put to death Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust. You've got to kill this thing. You've got to keep doing it. Because you don't, get this, you don't sort this once and it never raises its head again. You've got to put it to death. This is, it's partly what it means, you know, when Jesus talks about taking up your cross and dying daily to self, denying yourself and dying daily. This is ongoing discipleship. So Paul says, you've got to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, that nature that's in conflict with your new nature. You've got to be putting it to death, including lust. You've got to be ruthlessly intentional about this. So the question is, are we? Am I? Am I prepared to make a serious commitment before God right now about how I look at others and about what I walk out of here to watch and browse and dwell on and download? Are we going to make or remake or renew a covenant with our eyes? But back to Job for a moment, because in verse four of that chapter, and again, I'd never, I'd never noticed this before, but he asks a question, and, and, and it's a potentially great motivator. Here's the question Job asks. Job asks, does God not see my ways and count my every step? Do you know what it just struck me? God is the original step counter, way before Fitbit, right? That's not a, God sees our ways and counts our every step. You see, Job knew that God sees 
everything. So there's nothing we do, there's nothing we watch, there's nothing we look at, there's nothing we click on, there's nothing we download, there's nothing we browse that God doesn't see. And for Job, reminding himself of that truth and that fact was important. And I want to suggest that that renewed awareness can potentially temper that second look, that lingering gaze, or that click to refresh. God sees it all. That's scary, but it's also heart-protecting. Job was a very astute man. Because let me highlight one other comment from this chapter of the game I don't think I'd ever noticed before. But in verse 7, Job asks this or says this, If my heart has been led by my eyes, then may others eat what I've sown and may my crops be up. You see, Job knew that what he looked at affected him at a very deep level. He knew that the eye and the lust of the eye can lead the heart, can take the heart in a particular direction. And therefore, he said, you know something, see if my heart is led by my eye, I need to suffer the consequences. So, how might we take seriously the words of Jesus to gouge out our eyes? to avoid them causing us to stumble. Three things. Make a covenant with your eyes. Remake a covenant with your eyes. Renew a covenant with your eyes if you've done this before. Secondly, just know that God sees everything. And thirdly, remember that the heart or the eye can lead your heart. And two last comments. Lust often thrives in privacy and isolation. And although some of us struggle with it, we never talk about it, we never confess it, we never deal with it. And so we, we make all kinds of resolutions alone and then we kind of mess up and we beat ourselves up and then we drift back into it in private in isolation and the cycle continues. And to combat lust and to gouge out the eye, to deal ruthlessly with sin, because it's, it's all sin. We may need to consider the importance, and I've touched on this before, we may need to consider the importance of community and openness and accountability. It's good to be part of a community where these issues are talked about in a healthy way. They've got to be talked about in a healthy way. They've got to be talked about, I believe, up front. And it is good whenever we can be open and honest with others, whenever we can ask for help and support, whenever something like lust is damaging our hearts. And I know it requires wisdom and it requires trust and it involves being appropriately vulnerable, but having one or two ways and trusted others in our lives who understand our struggle, who are willing to journey alongside us can make a huge difference and can encourage a ruthless approach. And then the second thing, so don't let lust thrive in privacy and isolation. Consider community, openness, and accountability. But the other thing is this, going back to Hebrews 12, 
where the writer says, I need you to throw off the sin that so easily entangles you. And I want you to run with perseverance the race that is marked out for you. And how do we do that? We fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of your faith. You see, when lust entangles, because let's not keep it, you know, when sin easily, let's, let's specify. When lust entangles, refocus reframe your vision. Consider Jesus in those moments. And so, how seriously do you take sin? Because based on this controversial saying of Jesus from Matthew 5, it's vital we do. It's vital I do. Because if we are going to flourish, then we must take sin seriously as Christians.